This episode of the Pillar Podcast is brought to you by the Christendom College Graduate School of Theology, where theology is practiced with uncompromising fidelity to the deposit of the faith. Learn more at graduate.christendom.edu. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn. I'm joined by my podcasting partner, my Pillar co-founder, and my friend, Ed Condon. And Ed, we have been talking in our pre-show conversation about uh, about World Youth Day. Oh, we have. I thought we we also were talking about my my time in front of the magistrate uh, this week. Uh, oh, we it's been were. A busy we, week. <laughs> we weren't actually in our pre-show conversation talking about your time in front of the magistrate. But it is obvious to me by the way you presented that that you would like to talk about it on the show a little bit. Ed, you were in court this week. <laughs> I was in court this week. Would you like to tell us about it? No. <laughs> what are you do with that? There you go. <laughs> well, Ed, I think the people would like to hear about it. Ed was in court this week in Ohio. Ed, a couple of weeks ago, got a speeding ticket in Ohio, driving home from his grandmother's funeral. He was driving really fast, and he got pulled over. The baby was crying. Um, he and Mrs. Condon were at their wit's end, and so they thought they were in Ohio. They were full, like, seven hours from their home and they thought let's just get home as quickly as we can so i guess that intended to speed for a, quite some time um but he but the police had other other plans there's a lot that's conjecture in there um no i was pulled over for driving too fast um i wasn't aware of how fast i was going as i informed the officer at the time uh but i i i don't know i look an eight hour round trip to go to court for a speeding offense is Punishment in itself. You had to go to court this on Monday. Your, I had to go your to court, speed yeah. was such that you had to go to court. I was, but I, I tell you, I I had hoped it would be a kind of my cousin Vinny thing. And <laughs> wasn't that a murder trial? Yeah, but I so I, I mean the murder trial were... is incidental in my cousin Vinny. It's <laughs> it's a character study of a community and its local judicial system. And I kind of got that experience. I mean, everyone was as you would expect, incredibly nice and friendly. And everyone seemed to know each other. And that was the really interesting thing is I felt like a stranger in the courthouse, like everyone from the clerks to the prosecutors, to the cops on duty, to all of the defendants, everyone seemed to know each other. And, and so it, everyone was just kind of looking at like, you know, who's the guy in the suit? Like, and it was, it was very, it was very fun and a little unsettling that way, but it was really nice. I mean, the, the best parts of this country, um, are places that unfortunately you tend to drive through at a rate of speed. And and that is unfortunate. Although I would say, I think the entire Ohio Turnpike is basically entrapment. Um, it's like 350 miles of straight flat road. I, it, you, it's it, no reasonable person just drive 70 miles an hour in those circumstances late at night. I mean, it's, I, you know, I, I have questions about that, but anyway, no, I, um, so what's your punishment? Uh, uh, no, he fined me. He, he he gave me a fine that he considered proportional to the offense. And I was. If I were a judge, I'm going to tell you the truth. If I were a judge and you came to my courtroom, I would definitely make you write an essay about what you. I would I would uh, I would not make everyone write an essay, but I would definitely make you write an essay about what you did and and how you would avoid doing it in the future. I think I probably could have risen to that task. Would that would that have been in lieu of points on my license? Because I would eagerly have done that. No, I, no, uh, I would have been probably. It seems the judge was very lenient. He didn't give you points on your license. He didn't. 
Well, it's um, it's ambiguous whether he gave me the, 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 there's a there was a question in my in the sentence that I was handed about whether or not I will get points. I it's possible that they will be assigned by Ohio, but it's it, let's just say um, the state in which I live does not automatically accept such points from out of state jurisdictions. So um, yeah, I may I may or may not get points for this particular offense. We'll see. Okay. Well, I know you're very proud of of all of this. And, I'm not uh, proud. I, I, I'm always, I'm, I'm always pleased to have the opportunity to meet new people and and experience the community life of of corners of the country with which I'm otherwise familiar. But you come on, you say that you're not proud. But let's put it out there. As soon as you got that ticket and found out you had to go to court, you realized you were going to have a story to tell, and a, which would which will be embellished over time, without any doubt. You realized you were going to have a story to tell about your brush with the criminal justice system, and you realized that the next time someone was messing with you, you'd be able to say, "Hey, man, don't don't mess with me. I'm there's a bench warrant out for me in Erie County, Pennsylvania. Even if there was, I mean, you this is something that you are pretty pleased about dieting out on in your mind, are you not?" No, um, although I will admit, when when I found out I had a court date, I did contact a couple of of lawyers that I know, some of them professors at eminent law schools, and I asked them what is the sort of reach of the long arm of the law, uh, of you know from Milan, Ohio. I learned I was told it's not Milan, Ohio; it's Milan, Ohio. They think you're um, they think you're a weird outsider if you call it Milan, um, and. And because I, I did kind of wonder, like, well, if I just never go back to Ohio, am I fine? You know, yeah. Like, can this? Am I going to get a local cop in another state knocking on my door saying, you know, there's a bench warrant out for you in Ohio, or can I just go through this room and say, hey, I'm wanted in the state of Ohio? That that sounded to me kind of cool, but apparently, um, the the legal advice I was given was that that was probably a bad idea. That would be that would be poor judgment on my part. So. Well, there you go. Okay, uh, now that we're done talking about that, Ed, we before we started the show, what we were talking about was World Youth Day because lots of people right now, I mean, lots of people right now are talking about World Youth Day. Um, at least we're hearing from a lot of people who are talking about World Youth Day, which ended on August the 6th with a vigil mass, including 1.5 million people uh, uh, who came to the mass. We'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, after World Youth Day, the Pope um, on the airplane... Uh, when you say the Pope on the airplane, ordinarily your blood pressure goes up because you just don't know what's going to happen. But the Pope on the airplane coming back from Portugal to Rome was asked about, um, you know, the or you know, during World Youth Day, the Pope had said the church is for everyone, totos, 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 which is sort of I think becoming a theme for some people, sort of totos, 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 in the way that "Be Not Afraid" was a theme for John Paul II, or "Dear Young People" was a theme for Benedict XVI. Um, sort of totos, totos, totos is becoming a kind of Francis. Uh, theme for people. At any rate, um, on the plane, the Pope was asked, well, you said totos, 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 but you know, what about um, people who uh, believe in the ordination of women or people who, uh, you know, otherwise are, um, uh, um, are at odds with Catholic doctrine? And I thought the Pope gave a pretty good answer. I mean, what, what do you think? What, what, what did the Pope say and what do you think? Um, the Pope described this as a sort of uh, Gnosticism, I believe, mm -hmm. that um, to to relegate um, everything of the of the external and physical, and say no, all that matters is what you want inside, and you know what you think, and all. And I I think that's not an inaccurate diagnosis of the phenomena. And I I too thought he gave a pretty good answer. I 
I do find it interesting that this is a this is a sort of constant hermeneutical lens that people try and put on the Pope. You know, like, you know, they, he says the church is for everyone, and they say, but but if the church is for everyone, that means everyone gets to do whatever they want, right? Everyone has to have the question was I just looked it up. The question was not everyone has the same rights and the opportunities. Um, how do you explain the inconsistency between an open church, totos, 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 and a church not equal for all? And the Pope, I can says, explain that the 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 inconsistency or the apparent inconsistency can be explained by the ignorance of the questioner. <laughs> well, that is how you would answer it. But you not being the pontiff, I think it's probably good that the pontiff well, gave Pope. Francis has a shepherd's heart, so he's not going to say, well, that's a stupid question from a stupid person. <laughs> but I Representing think, a bad faith point of view. Say a little bit more about what he did say, because I did think that his answer was pretty good. I do think his answer is pretty good. No, what he, what he says, he called it a kind of Gnosticism, to say that, you know, um, to, to think of uh, the, the distinctions between men and women, um, the nature of sacramental orders – uh, the nature of marriage, the nature of gender, all of these things that in secular society are viewed purely through what I think the Pope correctly identifies as a Gnostic lens of, you know, it's there, there's all that matters is a sort of hidden knowledge and secret spark of the inner and the spiritual and to, you know, remove and um, ignore the realities of our physical incarnation and, and, and what the faith has to say about that and what Christian anthropology says about that. I thought it was a very good answer. Um, and I think he's right. Yeah, I thought so too. So that was, I mean, in general, uh, that was um, kind of, I guess, like, uh, you know, if you thought there would be a controversy after World Youth Day and you had to lay down odds in advance, you would lay down odds on the prospect that the Pope would have said something on an airplane that was less, uh, you know. Uh, I don't was, know. I feel like, with, I mean, there have been sometimes there have been some occasions where the Pope has said things on in-flight press conferences that I have considered. I, I would have preferred he not address in that venue in an off-the-cuff manner. But generally speaking, I think the Pope's sort of quote-unquote most famous uh, off-the-cuff answers on planes tend to be, if they are controversial, more often than not, they are controversial because someone willfully misrepresents them. So for example, the you know, the other the, the sort of you know er example of Pope Francis on a plane is the who am I to judge? And you know, that that gets Used and abused um, from exactly the same point of view as as this question was posed about you know well you say the church is for everyone but you don't let everyone just do whatever they want and believe whatever they want and that's not very inclusive is it you know and and they say well the Pope Francis said who am I to judge which means you can do whatever you want and that's not what the Pope said he gave a very um, he gave a very specific response to a very detailed question about well what about priests who experience same sex attraction mm -hmm. who are yeah. honoring chastity and celibacy and trying you know to to live out their priesthood in a in a good and holy way and he said look if a priest is sincere in his devotion and faith to the lord and has you know wrestles with you know an internal disposition who am i to judge him if he's you know if he's living his priesthood well and everything else and believes what the church believes so i mean i yeah i too tend to you know parts of me clench when pope francis gives an in-flight press conference but um at, at the same time, um, I, I often find myself in sympathy with what the Pope is trying to says. say. Yeah. Yeah. Even, you know, um, <laughs> I have sympathy often for what the Pope wants to say. This is a bit of a diversion. Um, we're go we've gone down a rabbit hole, Ed. And um, JD, every time you start a show, as far as I'm concerned, is a diversion in a rabbit hole. Because actually <laughs> what we agreed we were going to talk about was, was personal prelatures and changes to canon law. We're going to talk about that in the second half of the show. I thought we talked about that. 
But um, it's but, just like talking to my wife. Just because you have a thought doesn't mean we had a conversation about it. Even with the Pope, even with the Pope, um, even when the Pope said the breed like rabbits thing, which was decidedly ill-advised, um, you do have a certain, which was way back in 2015, you do have a certain sympathy for what he wanted to say, which is that Catholics don't have a moral obligation to have as many children as they possibly can under all circumstances. He was effectively aiming to affirm the licit use of natural family planning. Did he do that? Well, um, did he do that in a manner that was well received? No. Was there a bit of a hermeneutic of suspicion there? I don't know. It was still kind of early. I don't know if people were offended because some people looked to be offended by the Pope or if that was one of the things which set people up to not expect the right things to be said by the Pope. I mean, it was just terrifically ill-advised and insensitive and, and, um, and not said well. Um, but I, I don't know if that's the chicken or the egg in a certain way. Um, yeah. Is that what started it all? In other words, yeah, when, was, I'm, when I'm, was, who am I to judge? Uh, around about that time, I think, uh, I mean, I'm getting old. So my memory begins to fail. Oh, me that was to 2013. So who am I to judge was earlier. So to, who am yeah. I to judge is what set people, um, to be, to anticipate problems when the Pope got it on an airplane. Um, well, or, or set people up to say. Hey, Francis is going to give a good soundbite that we can we can frame. Sure, so it's yeah, one, one way or another. Exciting That's ways. That's people said. Okay, this airplane thing is going to be different than Benedict going back to greet the journalist or JP Two going back to greet the journalist. This is going to be. There's going to be. I some don't think Pope should talk here. to journalists. Is my, is one of my. You don't think Pope should talk to journalists? No, he's a he's he's a sovereign. You don't. The, the king doesn't give interviews. The king is the king. I, I you know I, I I think. And it's because I think so highly of our Holy Father. I think it is beneath his dignity to sully himself with a press pen. I, hmm, he's he's not a he's not a mere prime minister or president. Um, he his status is somewhat more lofty, and for exactly this reason that his pronouncements carry particular weight. And uh, I, I think very often for the Pope, um, who actually you know what Pope Francis is like, JD. It's like you. The Pope Francis and you are very similar in this way. I don't think the I don't think Pope should speak to the media, but Pope Francis is like you. Is not is this? Are you paying me back because I teased you about the media stuff? No, 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 no. I, let me develop my point. Um, both Pope Francis and you, as I perceive you both, have an almost overwhelming urge to presume and try and engage in, with good faith with people who, with whom you cannot engage in good faith, and and Pope Francis does this very often um, when speaking to the media. And and you do it very often on social media. Um, you know, one of my favorite. Uh, you know, it's, it's kind of like a comic strip for me. Like when you used to read comic <laughs> strips in the newspaper. Like my version yes. of a comic strip is I'll read JD tries to engage a lunatic on Twitter in good faith. <laughs> and you know, I, I always know how the how the thread's going to end, but it's still fun to watch you get there. And um, and I you know I I think Pope Francis on occasion is is being very very sincere and trying very very hard to reach out and to answer questions and everything else, but there's an asymmetry between how he is how he's thinking and trying to engage and how people are posing questions. Like for example, the one we started talking about, which was clearly a bad faith at worst or extremely ill informed at best question that was trying to get the Pope to say something controversial. Um, and and hopefully that could be presented in a way that seemed to vitiate church teaching, and and I just I don't know I feel like in his engagement with media, Pope Francis is very often casting pearls before swine, and I you know I I don't think he needs to tax himself that way. 
He's he's in his upper 80s. He's got a lot on his plate. I think of things that he could do to husband his resources and energy, not doing papal press conferences on airplanes. That's, that's low-hanging fruit. He could take a nap, watch a movie. You know, <laughs> I'd be fine with that. You sat next to a cardinal of the church on a long airplane flight not long ago. Um, I did. And uh, he, it was a perfect occasion for a press conference in that you could have asked him questions, I suppose. I but could have. He he was not He wasn't disposed. having any of it. He well, he's. This is a cardinal whom I, I think it would be fair to say is not a is not a fan of mine he's or my work. Not a pillar reader in a good way or any no. other way. Actually, he probably no. He's uh, not a cardinal who no. He he sat next to me often. and I left him alone and he watched somewhere in the region of twenty episodes of Dairy Girls, <laughs> and I memorized as he typed in his um, passcodes for his iPad and phone and. <laughs> You know, I, I think I think the flight passed perfectly fine for both of us. <laughs> okay, well, World Youth Day. Um, I I think in summation, um, Pope's not Pope did fine job on airplane. To everyone's surprise, Pope's not give press conferences good idea, or or any number of other kinds of interviews on the whole. It, you know, if there's one thing that we have really learned it's that in general right now the media apparatus of the holy see is in a, probably an underappreciated crisis which is to say that the media apparatus of the holy see has rather consistently in recent years demonstrated itself to be hostile to media aiming to get clarity and i don't just mean us i mean all i mean from people as broad as the associated press to us um, in terms of their journalistic integrity and output, but um, hostile, um, hostile to media who are trying to get answers to real things, and then friendly, and then friendly to media who can have consistently misrepresented the Pope, like the the Scalfrey interviews, which have been just a disaster for the Holy See. Like, um, I don't know if there's no one telling the Pope, you know, that the airplane things are not a good idea, um, and that he probably could be more selective about interviews or not um it's really hard to see what advice the pope is listening to there and what advice he's getting i I think that's probably true i it's surprising to me that the the holy see press office like the castry for communications isn't um isn't a more obviously professional outfit i mean they they do have the biggest budget of any vatican department including i'd add the secretary of state which you know that's a lot of money um to be throwing around with Departments do and do well maintain global networks of embassies on with less cash, and uh, you know all people really want from the Dicastery for Communications system to keep the website up to date and answer questions. Go yeah. figure. Go figure. Um, so no, I, I think I would agree with you there. Okay, Ed. Well, listen, we were going to talk next about World Youth Day, but what's happened is we've spent we've talked now for about twenty minutes, and we're going to have the commercial break soon. So, what I'd like to do, if it's okay with you, is talk about personal prelatures, a big development in the world of personal prelatures this week, and then after the commercial, uh, talk about World Youth Day. Is that is that okay with you, Ed? I see what you've done here, but <laughs> what you know, have I done? what you've done here is you've, you. We, we were going to talk about some. We had a clearly laid out schedule of we were going to just we're just going to have some informal chat up front. Just ease into the episode, you know, get ourselves settled in, you know, been a busy morning, a lot of writing, all that sort of stuff. Then we're going to talk about canon law because uh, that's what we like to do. Then we're going to have a commercial break. Then maybe we're going to talk a little bit about World Youth Day. Instead, <laughs> we started with cold open World Youth Day. 
I said, what about the canon law stuff we want to talk about? You said, oh, yeah, yeah, we'll do that in the second half of the show. We then talked about World Youth Day for 20 minutes. And he said, well, okay, now we're going to have five minutes to talk about the interesting thing that happened in canon law this week and all of the questions it raised. I don't, After see, the I don't five minutes commercial break, questions. and then I, we'll do more World Youth Day. I honestly, this is my area of, of canonical interest. Well, this is a part of my area of canonical interest. And uh, I, I really like knowing about uh, associations and uh, movements. And, and uh, you know, I've consulted on a ton of like the establishment of associations and stuff. And I kind of like that stuff. But I wrote my uh, thesis on personal prelatures and s- some news, some big news happened in the world of personal prelatures this week. But I don't know how much discussion it really is going to generate. Um, here's what happened. Oh, go ahead, please. No, no, no. You, you go ahead and you nutshell this if you'd like. Um, and then I will just play, because I do, I'll just play the guy who has questions. Okay. Uh, and we'll just see how much conversation this generates because I am interested and I and I have a limited knowledge base on this beyond okay. sort of basic legal familiarity with the norms of the code. Okay, here's uh, here's what happened. Pope Francis this week um, uh, issued a motu proprio changing some elements of uh, of per, of the canon law governing personal prelatures in the life of the church. Personal prelatures are institutes in the life of the church which which have they are um, Juridic entities which have the faculty to incarnate clerics um, for the sake of some particular mission. They were first sort of discussed magisterially by the church uh, during the Second Vatican Council in Presbyter Orum Ordinis, um, when the council was talking about the importance of like good distribution of clerics so that like there wasn't an over-concentration of clerics in some parts of the world and a paucity of clerics and other in, in places with, with real missionary need. And it said, you know, we need to devise some mechanisms by which we can sort of better distribute clerics in the world and um, ha- better have secular clerics on a mission. So a secular cleric is a is a, basically a diocesan priest, a priest who is incarnated somewhere and doesn't take vows, isn't part of a religious order or anything like that. Um, and mo- you know, most secular clerics are diocesan priests. In fact, until the notion of personal prelatures, the two terms were practically synonymous. But what the Second Vatican Council said is if we had these prelatures, these organizations, juridic entities of clerics who are incarnated, that is to say, sort of joined to an institution in the church for the sake of mission, not location, we could sort of better distribute priests. And and the idea was, you know, what if we had effectively diocesan priests, secular priests, who could be trained for missionary work, evangelization, and and, uh, um, effectively the new evangelization, and then missioned out. And there was a model for this. There was something called the Mission de France, which was um, a seminary in France that was established for effectively the re-evangelization of France. And um, and the, the desire of the French bishops was to have a cadre of priests who are specially trained for missionary work. They said, look, our parish pastors have enough to do. They're not missionaries, you know, in terms of sort of the re-evangelization of secularizing France. So we need to train like a special shock troop group of priests who can go and be, you know, not have the obligations of, of a parish, but um, but just be much more close to people and able to sort of go out and be in people's homes and be where they work and accompany them, if, if you will, back to Mass, back into the sacraments, where their pastors would pick them back up and it would be kind of a handoff. Um, and so the seminary was established called the Mission de France, which was meant to train French priests for the evangelization of French people. The question is, what do you do with them? If you incarnate them in their dioceses, then there's a risk that their diocesan bishop will say, uh, yeah, that's cool. I'm so glad you went to the Mission de France. And yeah, I want you to do missionary work, but I need you to be the pastor of three parishes or I need you to work in the chancery or whatever. Like just if they went and sort of were absorbed back into their own diocesan presbyterates, their the plan for these guys, the bishops knew they didn't even trust themselves. They knew the plan for these guys would be that they would use them for other stuff. So they said to the Holy See, what if you let us create um, 
a legal fiction, a territorial prelature, a, a territory, um, which uh, a so, small ecclesiastical circumscription, which is headed by a prelate, which has the faculty to incarnate, but the territory will be the grounds of the seminary. So, you know, let us create effectively a diocese of half a square mile or a square mile or something like that, that can incarnate. The territorial prelature will incarnate all these guys. Anybody who lives in the territory will take care of them sacramentally, but then the prelate will be able to send them out for missionary work because the needs of the, you know, the territorial prelature are not that much. So the territorial prelature of the Mission de France was established and it did the work that I described to you. And then eventually the Mission de France priests started doing sort of missionary work as well. And it still exists, although I don't think there are very many of them now. I think there's like a handful of them who are incarnated there because the idea is kind of gradually uh, dissipated. But, um, but that idea got people talking. I said, okay, what we've done here is create a legal fiction. We've created a territory nullius, a territory of none. There, this is not a real people place. So what if we just create the same idea? An ecclesiastical circumscription with no territory where a prelate, um, which is to say, you know, a, a priest or bishop endowed with authority can uh, ha- has the faculty to incarnate priests into his ecclesiastical reality for the sake of some evangelical project or missionary project. So you have secular diocesan priests, not members of religious order, who are not beholden to some other place but can be missioned. The Second Vatican Council endorses this idea. It makes its way into the Code of Canon Law. But right before it makes its way into the Code of Canon Law, Opus Dei, the Spanish ecclesial movement, says, hey, we think personal prelature would be a good structure for us. Now, the reason for that is very complicated because Opus Dei, Ed, is mostly about what? What if I said I don't know? The sanctification of the laity. Oh, okay. Opus Dei is mostly about the sanctification of the laity in the world. Okay. It, is, it perceives itself and presents itself as mostly... It's kind about of the sanctification of, of the quotidian reality, right? Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. And laity becoming saints in that context, right. right? So it perceives itself as a sort of lay thing, which has clerics for the sake of formation of the laity who adhere to its spirituality. Now, I just said to you that the personal prelature was an institution for clerics and that Opus Dei is effectively perceives itself as an institution for laity. So there seems to be a tension there. But Opus Dei said to, uh, which was having a hard time getting a clear sense of what its own juridic structure should be because it was one of the first kind of big time ecclesial movements of the 20th century, um, went to JP2 and said, hey, personal prelature sounds like a great idea to us. And we have this big body of theological scholarship that explains why personal prelature is, is good for us. Why don't you approve our statutes and erect this as a personal prelature? And JP2 says, yeah, sure, great. But the statutes are in tension with the law that JP2 was developing at the same time because the statutes of the personal prelature talk about lay people being members of the personal prelature, incorporated into the personal prelature. And I just told you that personal prelatures are institutes or structures of um, clerics. That tension has been a sticking point since. Early 1980s, two things happened. JP2 promulgates the Code of Canon Law, which systematizes the notion of personal prelatures as I described them to you, and says lay people can cooperate with personal prelatures by means of agreements. At the same time, JP2 approves a document that says, hey, I'm erecting a personal prelature. It turns out to be the only one. I'm erecting a personal prelature, which has lay people in it. They're members. That creates a tension. It's a tension in principle. It's a tension about, you know, like sort of in legal principles. So legal theorists say this isn't right because it's in tension with the law, you know, so there's this sort of theoretical tension, but there's also a practical tension. What rights do the lay people have? What oversight does the prelate have over them? How does that oversight relate to the oversight of their pastor? Um, how how clear is it that they are members of their parish um, and members of their diocese, subject to the jurisdiction of their diocesan bishop? In some way, you know, does the prelate, do they owe the prelate something called obedience? If they disagree with the prelature, can they make a recourse against it? All of these questions, very practical questions, arise out of this kind of tension. 
where the law says one thing and the statute say another thing. And, you know, Opus Dei has said in various ways, as the existing prelature, our statutes flesh out what the law says, and so our statutes sort of predominate. And different canon lawyers, especially um, Gianfranco Ghirlanda, have said, no, no, I think we really need to correct this and modify the way that we approach prelatures because of what the law says. There are other questions related to that and the prelature being a part of the hierarchical constitution of the church and other things, but I, I want to boil it down for you. So in the JP2 era, nothing much happens about this tension. It's sort of written in journals. Um, in the Benedict era, the same. But in the Francis era, Gerlanda, who becomes a close advisor of Pope Francis and sort of becomes involved in reforming a lot of religious communities, goes to Pope Francis and says, hey, I think we should do something about this. And Francis agrees. And so he has written a couple of modo proprios. One of them said that the prelate, the head of a prelature, would not be a bishop. That was sort of directed at Opus Dei. And then this recent one, and then and then Opus Dei was directed to sort of revise its statutes in accord with some direction that the Holy See gave it. And then this recent one is a call for um, more changes to, or not a call for, but the enactment of more changes to the canon law related to um, uh, prelatures. So the changes are to say that the Pope explicitly says that prelatures are like associations of priests. They're like um, they're like associations, clerical associations of pontifical right with the faculty of incarnated clerics. He clarifies, the prelature is a clerical thing. And thus, the implication of that is that laity are not, you know, understood in canon law to be members of the prelature. Now, the statutes of Opus Dei at the moment are in effect, but the tension is exacerbated and the Pope sort of lands on the clerical side. Then he says, again, he emphasizes, lay people can dedicate themselves to the work of the prelature by means of an agreement, a kind of contract. But he also says, but you can't forget at the same time the right of the past, of the diocesan bishop to be the diocesan bishop of the people. So he emphasizes the diocesan bishop is the diocesan bishop of the members of Opus Dei and not the um, prelate. And Opus Dei says, okay, well, what we're going to do is we're going to kind of work on revising our statutes more to respond to this because what else can they do? Opus Dei doesn't like this. Um, because of how they their self-understanding, their self-perception. But um, Gerlanda really got the ear of the Pope on this. And so changes that sort of people from the Gerlanda School of Canon Law have been saying are sort of necessary um, are now coming to the fore. Now, one question is, was the prelature ever a good structure for Opus Dei? And I think people of the Gerlanda School would say it, it doesn't quite make sense that Opus Dei was a prelature because it wanted so much to be a lay thing. And it should have been a group of associations, a clerical association and a lay association or some other, you know, interrelated to each other or some other structure. But its current structure has just not made sense in, in certain ways. And we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. <laughs> Ed, this week's episode of The Pillar Podcast is brought to you by the Christendom College Graduate School of Theology, where theology is practiced with an uncompromising fidelity to the deposit of faith. That's right. What sets Christendom Graduate School of Theology apart is that the program and the curriculum um, take a particular approach to the teaching that they embody. The logic of the curriculum is structured around the creed, guided by the magisterium's directives on theological formation, grounded in the writings of the church's greatest and most famous minds, especially the church fathers and Thomas Aquinas. And also the best of the church's more recent um, thinkers. You know, Christendom is sort of engaging the current um, and the church's tradition. And um, Christendom students, the goal is not just intellectual knowledge, but to transform Christendom students into living vessels of the church's tradition, equipped to hand on to others what they've received. A transformation of heart and mind that this education entails is necessarily broad and deep. It integrates not only the appropriation of substantive content, 
but also the cultivation of the habits of mind that enable students to think deeply and dialectically, to explain and to analyze and to defend the faith. That's right. There's an emphasis on personal immersion with primary sources, that this isn't just That's about right. you're reading something in a book. This is about you are you are living it. You're living the study. And I, I really like that. You know, The entire approach to to the study of theology should very much be a work of your whole life, of your whole self, that it isn't a question of it's an intellectual pursuit. You have to engage with it spiritually. You have to engage with it reflectively. I like all of it. And so this fall, um, they're offering courses on things like apologetics, patristics, and sacred scripture. Uh, but you can also take an advanced course on a particular topic like sexual and biomedical ethics um, or you know, and explore questions like ectopic pregnancies and the debates around end-of-life issues around church teaching. Yeah, that's right. Um, all courses are taught live in hybrid fashion. You can show up in person on Christendom Scenic Shenandoah Valley Campus in Virginia, or you can study online. There's synchronous instruction, live interactive instruction, and asynchronous pre-recorded schedule when it's convenient to you. Participation is available for students taking the course online. Apply for a master's degree today, or just take a single course for personal enrichment. Um, Christendom says, and I think this is right, you can't give what you don't have. If you teach or hand on the faith in any way, or desire to do so, see the formation that Christendom Graduate School offers. You can check all of that out at graduate.christendom.edu. And we're back, Ed, and you've got questions about personal prelatures. I do. Um, first of all, thank you for that um, very, very helpful timeline uh, through everything. But I just want to clarify a few things and 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 concretize the, this whole conversation for for me. And for, I suspect, many of our listeners, and I also suspect for some of our listeners who will perhaps have some skin in the game, uh, yeah, some affiliation. Yeah, they members, they may disagree. Obviously, people have strong opinions about they, all this. You, so. can, you can disagree and have strong opinions and still have questions all at the same Indeed. time. And so that's, that, that, is the, that is the spot between the ears of our listening audience I wish to scratch. Now, okay. first of all, is there any point in talking about personal prelatures per se? Because there's only one personal prelature, Right. Right. So it's a kind of a funny thing because we're having a discussion in theory about personal prelatures when there's only one. There has been talk about other kinds of personal prelatures. There's long been the idea that if the Society of Pius X came back into the church, it would be a personal prelature. There's long been the idea that the bishops of the Philippines have floated, that maybe they should create a personal prelature to provide pastoral care for um, Filipinos living abroad, uh, especially those who, uh, fil there are a great many Filipinos living abroad who don't intend to permanently migrate, you know, immigrate somewhere and stay there, but intend to be sort of workers in the Middle East or in the United States or in Europe, um, uh, maybe Australia as well, uh, for a period of time, send money home and then eventually return home to the Philippines. So the Filipino bishops have from time to time floated the idea that maybe they should have a personal prelature of effectively missionary priests to, um, to expat Filipinos. There have been a few other ideas, but yeah, there's just the one. And so there's this fiction of talking about personal prelatures, qua personal prelatures, when Opus Dei is the one. Right. So we're, when we're talking about personal prelatures, we're talking about Opus Dei, because these changes to canon law do not seem to me to be made with the intention of shaping future, not yet in existence, personal prelatures that may or may not be a glint in the eye of a bishop's conference somewhere. That these these changes to the universal code appear relatively targeted at Opus Dei, and reasonably so, because they're the only ones that the law applies to right now. Is that fair to say? Yeah, and okay. no. in a certain way, the interesting thing about these changes, let me say this because I think it's important. These changes are not so much changes as emphases placed into the law. The, the, the big change is what the Pope already did, which is to say the prelate will not be a bishop for Opus Dei. But these changes are more like, hey, we want to emphasize some stuff and we're going to stick that emphasis into the law more than 
you know, which Gerlanda said was already in the law, more than kind of something is fundamentally different now about personal predators from the perspective of people kind of in the Gerlanda school on this question. Okay. Now, as I've understood it, and and I think this is one of the takeaways I got from your your presentation of the sort of skeleton of, of the timeline and issues here, is that Opus Dei has always perceived itself as being primarily a work of and for and by the laity. Is that not fair? For and much of it by. I mean, there's a clerical part and and you know, the, a priest of Opus Dei is not sort of diminishing his priesthood, or you know, anti-clerical. No, but the, or the majority like that, but of people who would consider who are, themselves of Opus, Opus Dei, Dei are sort of saying its work is the sanctification of the lady and the sanctification of the world through the lady, and that, of course, is the work of the lady. Yeah. Okay, fine. But basic question: Yes or no? The majority of the quote-unquote members of Opus Dei are lay. Uh, according to the statutes, yes. There's okay. like some 90,000 members of Opus Dei according to its okay. statutory definition. Right. Okay. And so it is the nature of their of the, of the this majority's quote-unquote membership of Opus Dei that has been the subject of sort of it, reinterpretation, reinterpretation, different feelings, different hopes and ambitions, and different lived realities. Is that fair to say? Yes. Okay. And – I mean, I've read the changes to the code, and it was and it was very clear. And they, you know, they likened uh, very explicitly the language of the code now likens personal prelatures to clerical associations of pontifical right, which is effectively a strengthening of the of the prelature of the of the canonical and Vatican II definition of a prelature as a clerical institution. Okay, quick quick question: Can clerical associations of pontifical right incarnate clerics? With the well, the Pope affirms clerical associations of pontifical right with the faculty of incarnation. So the such Pope a thing says, exists. Well, yes, and the Pope says that's analogous to a personal prelature. So if there's a thing that there are lots of, and then there's another thing that there's only one of, why have a personal prelature at all? Indeed. Second question. You no, know, because you're making the eyes, and so if I let you start answering now, that'll I'll have forgotten what my next question is by the time you finish. Um, next question. It, it seems to me that, at least as I've understood it, there are different strata of "quote unquote" lay membership of Opus Dei. There's numeraries, there's supernumeraries, and numeraries, supernumeraries, cooperators. Yeah, yeah, and and they all have different um, sort of degrees, levels of obligation, levels of obligation, and degrees of affiliation. Thing, and in some cases, I think I'm right in saying this: numeraries have common life. Um, they live in Opus Dei centers and stuff. Often live in Opus Dei centers, not necessarily, but numeraries often live in Opus Dei centers, although. Common life would be a bit – not at, not in the – the numerators do not live with the evangelical councils in the sense of a religious – No, they don't it's live with the evangelical councils. more akin to living in something like a secular institute. They don't see the administration of their goods. I, I can't remember if members of secular institutes see the administration I, no, of No, but goods. I think they do. I mean, they the, part of it, at least as I was reading it, is that a significant proportion of their personal income is given over to – they turn it over, but that's different. I mean, it's there's a categoric difference between turning over a lot of your money to Opus Dei and ceding mm-hmm. the administration of your goods. And it's, no, it's I, such a, I think, conceded there is a difference. But I'm saying there is, there is a yeah no conceded. It is an important legal distinction. But I'm saying there is the there is what appears to me to be a kind of common life in that you're living together in the same place, in the same building, so, most the, of the time, but not by necessity. Not by necessity. No, okay. Um. There they they are they they make some sort of promise of chastity question mark they, they make some promises and numeraries are celibate numeraries are celibate um they Which make some promises unmarried. what are the other kind of promises they make i i, I honestly had i'm not trying to put you on the spot i'm asking no 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 but it's a funny thing because i could pull up the statutes but 
my thesis is about the history of the notion of personal prelatures. So I'm not an expert on Opus Dei, qua Opus Dei, except to say the places where it seems to me that Opus Dei, from my perspective, doesn't really fit into the animal called personal prelature. Okay. So this is my question. Is it seems to me that there, there are competing lived realities or impressions yes. of what Opus Dei is. On the one hand, there the, the thinking of Gerlanda and the Holy See seems to be, well, you, you walk, quack, fly, and swim like the duck that is called Clerical Association of Pontifical Right. And the experience of um, many of the lay members seems to be that, no, this this really feels and is lived more like a society of apostolic life. I think Yolanda's point is, hey, because you were erected as a personal prelature, you need to walk, quack, and act like a personal prelature unless you want to be something else. Okay, so that, I, I that's my think... real question here is, yeah. if if at the heart of all of this, at least as I've understood it, and again, I'm not claiming perfect knowledge of this by any stretch of the imagination. I'm going on impressions I've got talking to people who I know who are affiliated with Hope's Day and everything. Um, but but if the sense is like, no, we don't like the way that this this frames us because we are members, properly speaking. This is, you know, our role as lay people in Opus Dei is central. Why not just agree and say, look, this category of personal prelature doesn't really fit what we are. And like, there's no shame in that. It's, you know, to say that, you know, these th this thing was erected as a new kind of thing when it was created, an entirely new legal category. And the experience of, what is it, 60 years now, more or less? 70? Yeah, there's a yeah since 1928, so longer than that, oh, almost okay. 100 years. But there's yes, there, Opus Dei has built up a lot of scholarship to to suggest that the prelature is a good fit for it. With which I don't feel every time I talk about Opus Dei, as opposed to talking about prelatures. Every time I talk about Opus Dei, I get a lot of email from people who, from Opus Dei, and I don't feel qualified to sort of summarize the arguments for why Opus Dei feels that the prelature is definitively the right structure. Right, but, but I are all say, people who argue I, I for that have. Santa Croce grads? Yes, it's a it's a Santa Croce and Navarra, which are two schools of canon law that have sort of built up this idea. It's a Santa Croce and Navarra kind of approach, but it, it's bare, it, it's rooted in this idea that they have a sort of legal realism, which is to say that law, which is kind of what you're getting at. They would say, well, we know what the prelature is because of the way that the prelature lives. And they would say that my approach or this approach that I'm expressing, which is to say the law describes a prelature as X and therefore if you're going to be a prelature, you should be X as a kind of positivism or something like that. They would see the prelature, the notion of the prelature as a kind of charismatic development of the Second Vatican Council instead of principally a juridic development of the Second Vatican Council. Now, if all of that seems a bit esoteric, I, I tend to agree. And I don't I think don't, it's esoteric, but I, but I do to, think it's slightly incoherent um, to say that a legal, a legal category is a charism of the council. Personal prelatures are a juridical innovation following the I'm council, reticent, meant to again, capture and give uh, some sort of support and legal grounding and underpinning to charisms, which you know all of these movements that follow the council and you know were around the time of the council are for sure. Those are those are charismatic in the in in the stricter sense um, movements, I think, and and real fruits of uh, of the council and everything. Um, but the Holy Spirit doesn't inspire a juridic reality. Like the church so creates a juridic say, reality. I, I'm re I'm going to say it again. I'm reticent to criticize Opus Dei's position because I'm not sufficiently summarizing it. Uh, you know that I would say I I sometimes think that the sort of Santa Croce theology of the um, prelature has not always made sense to me. But for sake of my inbox and to be fair, I mean to be fair to them. And I apologize, actually, to podcast listeners to this, because had I realized you were going to ask me about that, I honestly would have done a half an hour's worth of reading on um, 
the the Opus Dei sort of theology, the juridic theology, so to speak, or something like that. Well, that's okay. We're of, only going to um, talk about it for another fifteen minutes, so you're doing great. <laughs> I don't, I'm not saying I disagree with you. I'm just saying I don't, like, I honestly, there are many criticisms, and Gerlanda makes them, of the Opus Dei approach to prelatures. Okay, but so here's what, here's what, here's what I, when you, when you say that, here's my initial reaction to this. When you talk about the Opus Dei approach to prelatures or the, the approach to prelatures of um, particular scholarship in canon law. And you talk about universes, but girl, how to go on to these. This is when I get into the whole sort of, but what are we actually talking about here? Like talking about the legal reality of prelatures, talking about um, the conception of prelatures in the mind of the church and in the mind of the code and everything. It's like, but there's no such thing as prelatures. There's just the opus Dei. Well, there are other things. There are territorial prelatures. But no, but a territorial prelature is something totally different to a personal prelature. Yeah. The nut of it is that the opus Dei says that a prelature is made up of a group of the faithful and is structured hierarchically with a prelate as its head, and who is assisted by priests and deacons, which is effectively a description of something much more akin to a personal ordinariat. So there's a sense in which perhaps, you know, a criticism of, a, of, a, of the Opus Dei approach is that a, perhaps the Opus Dei has attempted to effectively um, reframe itself as a kind of um, personal ordinariat. Now, Opus Dei would say, no, no, we recognize the jurisdiction of the diocesan bishop, et cetera, et cetera. But its its notion of incorporation does sort of suggest that this is a hierarchical institution with the prelate at the top and lay people as members, and thus, by default, subject to him in some way or another. Um, that is what the Pope is sort of pushing back on and what Yolanda is sort of pushing back on. And it's important not only for Opus Dei, but it honestly is important because if there are going to be other prelatures, I think part of Gerlanda's point is if we're going to use this structure, which Vatican II suggests we create for a very specific reason, the one that we have made doesn't really, in his view, fit into what Op- what Vatican II said a prelature was for. So if we're going to use this structure in future, we better hammer that out. And then Opus Dei can decide, you know, or the church can decide in concert with Opus Dei whether prelature really is the right structure here or not. But there has not been very honestly, a great deal of attention paid to this ambiguity or tension in the life, you know, in the life of Opus Dei relative to the law until now. And so during the course of that time, Opus Dei has spent a lot of time sort of saying a prelature is a group of laity and clerics, and the the church just hasn't sort of said, well... Hmm. Well, I'm, I mean, I know that um, after after Pope Francis issued um, the most recent motu proprio, but this one, the one previous, um, they had the the one that said that the the moderator the the prelate of Opus Dei would no longer be a a bishop. Um, they convened an extraordinary general congress. I think it was in April to work on their statutes. To and work now, on their statutes. In light of those... this, they're going to have to work on them some more. Listen yeah. to this definition of Op- Opus Dei gives for a personal prelature from 2007. Um, in 2007, they say a prelature is a community of the faithful presided over by a prelate with a clergy that assists him in his pastoral task and a specific ecclesial purpose. Does that sound to you? Let me now read you the legal description, and then I'll say why. Why Gerlanda okay, is kind of what you just read to me sounds like a personal ordinary. Personal ordinary, right? But that mission part. So Opus Dei would say the difference is that an or you know an ordinary or something like that is just living in its world, whereas a prelature is this hierarchically constituted community with some apostolic mission, and so that's that's the distinction that they make. But is that's they a say society the of apostolic life. Except that they do not want to. Except that they, the secularity is an important element to them. 
So again, you can see how they're sort of like. But what's the purpose of secularity in- if you're not if you have a of a separate governing and reporting line outside of the diocese bishop? What does secularity mean this for clergy? The spiritual if they- notion of secularity of being in the world for their members that their that their members are not. You know, they would say consecrated life is a kind of separation from the world, whereas what we're talking about is a spirituality, which is a kind of plunging in. And therefore, we're disinclined. But but we think that we have this particular apostolic purpose, and therefore, we are, in a certain way, based on that 2007 description, much more akin to a, a hierarchically constituted ecclesial reality governed by a prelate with an apostolic purpose. But let me read that to you relative to, um, relative to Canon 294. After a conference of bishops have been consulted, the apostolic see can erect personal prelatures, which consist of presbyters and deacons of the secular clergy to promote a suitable distribution of presbyters or to accomplish particular pastoral or missionary works for various regions or different social groups. So Canon 294, personal prelatures consist of presbyters and deacons for a particular purpose or for distribution of priests. Opus Dei definition a community of the faithful presided over by a prelate with a clergy that assists him in his pastoral task in a specific ecclesial purpose. The common point, the point of commonality, is this ecclesial, this this missionary notion, this sort of a- apostolic identity. The point of divergence is about who who is actually sort of ascribed for that purpose and what their relationship is to the prelate. And so, the pope, what the pope is saying is, in as much as you're a personal prelature, you have to get closer to this definition in the law. Now, that doesn't mean that laity can't cooperate. In fact, the law says specifically that laity can cooperate by means of contracts and agreements. And um, and that was something that was envisioned at the time of, you know, by the fathers of the Second Vatican Council themselves, that there would be lay collaborators. But those collaborators are not viewed in the mind of the law as essential to the institution in the way that Opus Dei sort of describes the laity. And again, I think, I always think it's important in this conversation to say, this is a sort of legal conversation with practical implications. It's not meant to sort of disparage the work of Opus Dei or its place in the world or anything like that. No, no, no. It's, it, it, none yeah. of these reforms are even have been pitched in a way that... That suggests dysfunction or something like that. And none of them Rather are issued by... I mean, of, the letters that the Pope has written to accompany these motus proprio, you know, they don't... They're not... He's not finger-wagging and saying, you guys are doing it wrong. He's just saying... And all of these reforms are saying... There's a there's a lived reality and an experience, and there's the original legal definition we started with, and in the course of decades, there appears to be some distance and between the two. Emerging. Sort of you know, unofficial evolution, and we want to rein that in. Well, rein it in, or just reconcile the two. But when when opens, I guess I shouldn't even say an unofficial revolution because the fact of the matter is, John Paul II approved statutes that gave a different vision of the of the. Of the prelature than did the law that he also approved. At right, basically but, that, the same that, but that's what I mean. So, is it's the evolution of a reality, yeah. and it's not that one is you know sort of broken harmony with the other or done something wrong. It's just like yeah, saying here's exactly. this thing that's that's growing organically as a as what you would expect a charism of the Holy Spirit to do that it would. But grow I'm saying the tension work. is not just an organic tension. The tension is created by this decision of JP two to create a prelature which deviated from the laws that he created for the creation of prelature. I see. And why do you hate JP two? <laughs> Stop it. But any canonist will tell you that JP2, that an area of in need of development, and Benedict XVI, not a canonist, but Benedict XVI was pretty clear about this. An area of development needed subsequent to the JP2 papacy was the fact that JP2 was so, was, um, so enamored with ecclesial movements and so um, convinced of their importance in the life of the church, a perspective which I happen to share, that he was not careful about 
he was not sufficiently careful about scrutinizing them or their legal constructs or the implications thereof. And that's true for, in this sense, in a structural sense, I mean, in a sort of structural juridical sense, but obviously we know that it's true for things like Regnum Christi, the Legion of Christ, where JP2 was not sufficiently attentive to not only the person of Maciel, but also the decision of Maciel to create structures in which Regnum Christi consecrated had no rights, no means of protection in the life of the church, and therefore were subject to, you know, horrific abuses for which they had no canonical protection. But that they were not a personal prelature. No, Regnum Christi was a public association of the faithful, which was attached to um, the Legion. It was and is a public association of the faithful attached to, to the Legion of Christ. But my point is, JP2, I think a deficiency of the JP2 papacy was a failure to sort of sufficiently scrutinize ecclesiastical movements and the structures, both the structures and the personages connected to ecclesiastical movements. And and I say that as a person who thinks ecclesial movements are really important, but just this tension, which is now manifesting in the life of the church, Maciel, Fagari, et cetera, et cetera, the controversy over sort of neocat liturgy and the sort of so-called secret statutes of the neocat liturgical rubrics and these kinds of things, you know, all of these things would suggest processes that I think Benedict himself said, hey, we need we might need to do something about this and and started to, I think, with some cure changes and the con- you know, the Pontifical Council for the Promotion of the New Evangelization and things like this. And Francis has, uh, in some specific cases, sort of taken them up as his own. Hmm. We're going to have to do an entire episode on ecclesiastical movements. I've, I think I've just said everything I can say about them. No, you, you mentioned a lot of stuff that I haven't heard before, so I, I'm... I'm curious. Secret, I have questions. The, the secret statutes of the Neocat liturgy? Yeah, I wasn't aware that there were secret statutes. I thought <laughs> statutes by the nature were public. In fact, I've got yeah. I've got statutes of several ecclesiastical movements yeah, on my, on my shelf behind me. You ask Neocats about their liturgical rubrics, and they say they were approved by the Holy See. Then you say, could I see the decree? And what do they say? I don't know. What rubrics are we Why talking about? for that? I don't, I don't know what rubrics we're talking about. The Neocatechumen way ha- in its liturgy has some deviations from the Roman Missal. It was and yeah. It's my understanding. I, I can go back to the law. I'll, have, I'll check this one later on because you've you've piqued my curiosity. It was my understanding. I've never been able were, to get a hold of the decree. Have you? It was my understanding there isn't a separate decree that there's just the the statutes outline it. That's the answer I've always got. The statutes outline the liturgical innovation. Yeah. Oh, okay. Which I, are minor I, I and very very curtailed. Yeah, sure. I'm, all I'm saying is I think there's some uh, there is a, you know there's some uncertainty there, and there are people who would certainly ask. Well, I will I will edify your curiosity as I will my own because you've piqued it now. So, um, I'll I'll look into that later. Okay, fair enough. Well, Ed, there's been a lot of talk about World Youth Day and the liturgies of World Youth Day, and uh, a lot of that talk has to do with two things. One, pictures that were floating on the internet of a kind of of an IKEA bowl that was used for a saboria. We did some reporting on that, and what we found out was very interesting. People said this is why World Youth Day is bad. This is a liturgical abuse. I, I think. You know, the church does dictate that Saboria and other Eucharistic vessels should be made of precious metals, and a bowl from Ikea is not that. Um, but what we learned um, is that, that that mass, those Saboria, those Ikea Saboria that have been floating around on the internet, um, were actually not world youth from a World Youth Day official liturgy. They were from a, uh, a liturgy of the Spanish Bishops' Conference, and the Spanish Bishops' Conference, that is their regular youth apostolate Saboria. So whatever, Wait, whatever are they that conversation from is, Ikea? Yeah, there were IKEA labels on the bottom. Oh, IKEA bar, bar bar codes, UPC codes. Interesting. Yeah. So what we learned there is that one was not that one's not on World Youth Day. That was the Spanish Bishops Conference. Now it's on the Spanish Bishops Conference, but it's not on World Youth Day. But the other thing that has been floating around um, is concern about the way that the Eucharist was reserved 
um, for the large mass, the August 6th Vigil Mass of World Youth Day. 1.5 million people attended this mass. And ahead of that mass, there was another mass at which presumably hundreds of thousands of hosts were consecrated um, for the sake of distribution at the Vigil Mass. The general instruction for the Roman Missal says that it is preferable for people to receive the Eucharist uh, from ho- you know in hosts that were consecrated at the Mass at which they are attending when they receive the Eucharist during Mass, but it's a preference, and it's possible, of course, for for you to be able to receive the Eucharist from hosts that were not consecrated at that Mass, because sometimes if you're at Mass, you know Father goes to the tabernacle to get more hosts or something like that, because there's more people at Mass than he anticipated. However, in this case, hundreds of thousands of, of, of uh, hosts were consecrated, and they were stored. You know, World Youth Day Vigil Mass, people go before and camp out at this large field and stay out overnight, and then the Mass happens in the morning. These Hosts were stored in ciboria, metal ciboria with lids, but those metal ciboria with lids were placed in gray kind of Tupperware boxes, and then those were put in tents. With and the instruction was that some ciboria should be put on a table with candles so that people could come and pray. But they weren't really set up to be chapels; they were effectively tabernacles. The Lord was tabernacle, tabernacling among His people, so to speak. But that has created a lot of uh, controversy. We've learned some more of the facts, but that has created a lot of controversy because people took pictures on and put them on Instagram of of like places, for example, where just the the boxes were stacked on a table with you know not apparent much, apparently much reverence, and people said that pilgrims were not showing much reverence to these church to these little tabernacles, uh, tent tabernacles, which they didn't know about, etc. So the, a lot of controversy has been created about this, has it not? I, I will be honest. The first I heard of it was when. Um, Felipe reported on it for us, but I think that's not true because we no, talked about it. No, we, you mentioned it, but I hadn't seen it. I mean, most of this is happening, as far as I can tell, on Instagram and TikTok um, is where most of the reaction to this has been going on. And I'm I don't use either of those platforms, Instagram because I'm not a teenager, and TikTok because I'm not a supporter of the security apparatus of the Chinese state. Um, so no, I, I I don't actually. I I learned most of this from. Felipe filing his report, but it does seem to have generated quite a lot of concern and, and controversy. And, you know, I, I find it interesting. I find it interesting. I think that I, I don't know what people expect at an event where a million people are going to be present for mass. Like, what is the what is what is you know there there's it seems to be unrealistic to expect that there is going to be sort of permanent chapels of adoration or you know gold tabernacles brought in for you know the the housing of pre-consecrated hosts for for a mass for that many people so there's going to be some um you know it's going to be roughing it that's what world youth day is that's part of the experience and i mean i think if there are tents and there are people there who are in adoration it's there for people to adore while it's being reserved prior to distribution i i think that's good you know i i don't think it's a template for how the eucharist should be reserved generally (laughs) but you know on the other hand it's like well there's a lot of about there's a lot about the conditions of a you know multi week or week long pilgrimage to a place like World Youth Day or to an event like World Youth Day I should say that you know I don't think represents how we normally do things but you know well there are people know. who are saying that what they expect is Eucharistic reverence and they feel like this was not an expression of Eucharistic reverence because it certainly um, you know the, the the liturgical law is specific about how the Eucharist is to be reserved in a fixed tabernacle and. This certainly isn't that. Um, although, there right, but been, you can't you know, have people. fixed tabernacles for a temporary event. That doesn't make any sense. 
and I think their point is, I think, I think they're saying the same thing as you. I think the question becomes, so what do you do? And to you, it's like, well, you do what you can. And I think that's totally, you know, a, a position. And then I think the other position is, well, maybe you don't have mass for 1.5 million people. Or, you know, maybe you don't distribute communion for 1.5 million people. I looked into that. I read this morning, I looked in the relevant section to the general instruction for their own missile, the universal law of the church, uh, and the universal law of the church, and um, Redemptionis Sacramentum, and on some other liturgical texts. And the presumption of law is that the Eucharist will be distributed to all the people who are attending a Mass, made available to all the people who are attending a Mass. There's not... It's clear that the presumption of the church is that there will be the distribution of Holy Communion. Um, and of course, canon law, as you know, says that any Catholic who is not prohibited by law must be admitted to Holy Communion. And so presumably that means if you assist at a Mass, since Holy Communion is received by the priest, then anyone who's not prohibited by law and properly disposed should be able to receive as well. But I do think there is something to the idea that, it, like the question for me becomes, I think the World Youth Day Masses are very powerful, and I think your point is well taken if you're going to have them certain concessions have to be made to practicality. I, I think it does raise for me the question of, are masses the right thing at World Youth Day? Are stadium masses and large field masses the right thing? Or do they lend themselves to these kind of abuses, you know, p potential abuses and irreverence and the fact that people might profane the sacrament in various ways? And therefore, it, it would it be better at large Catholic gatherings to pray, for example, the Liturgy of the Hours together than, um, you know, with smaller groups having mass, than to have these large 1.5 million person masses where, very honestly, I mean, if you're 1.5 million people back, the question becomes how, how and, and your participation in the mass is entirely mediated by a screen and you're a, a, a half a mile away, how much can it be said that you're assisting, you know, or attending the mass any anyway? Well, I, I guess for me with this, Poses. I, I'm loath to say that these these things all constitute because in the end it's the Pope who's presiding at these things, and it's convened by the Pope. So far as I understand how World Youth Day works, um, but it does seem to me that it's it's kind of. I mean, there is nothing else, so I'm not saying it's wrong for you to do it, but I think at the same time it's also kind of silly to say, well, the germ doesn't seem, this doesn't seem to fit neatly in the germ. Of course it doesn't. The germ isn't, the germ isn't there to provide for and regulate and foresee masses with a million people. But it seems to it's be the general instruction for their own missile, is it not? I mean, why does a million people mean that the norm Because of it's the general and this is an exceptional and extraordinary event. Um, and, you know, general, is that general, general universal. In that sense? Doesn't the general instruction means for everyone, mean that it's for instruction everything. for all? Right, right, but I'm saying, and we have. Look, I. If if you'd like me to take you through the purpose of general norms, I will. Um, we have such you. things. We have such things as privileges, dispensations, rescripts. We have. Oh, so you're saying effectively law. the Pope is de facto dispensing from the norms. No, of I'm the not saying he's is. de facto dispensing. I'm saying that what this throws up to me is not. Oh, we're doing this wrong, or we're doing this better. We shouldn't do this at all. What it shows to me is we need more law. That what there should be is there should be some sort of special liturgical law for these mass events, if Big the church masses. is going to have them. And I don't think it's 
I don't think it's purposeful to say, well, is this the best way to, you know, should we be doing these large outdoors? Like we are, we have been doing them for decades. There's no sign that they're going to stop anytime soon. So I think they are just a reality of the life of the church at the universal level at this point. And so what we need is law that actually recognizes the practical realities of those things and says, okay, this is okay. This is not, this is how you should be approaching it. This is not, if you're going to have this many people and there's going to be pre-consecration of hosts and they're going to have to be reserved somewhere, here's what you do. You have a dedicated space in which all of the pre-consecrated hosts will be stored. And it is to have these marks of reverence and be clearly demarcated this way and be separate from the, you know, the, the general assembly if it is present prior to the mass this way. Or it's to be stored only in fixed tabernacles in local churches as best you can distribute them. And they have to come straight to the event for the event and shouldn't be stored on site beforehand. Like These are the sort of questions that I think we need better particular law for. Um, to just try and to try and put the germ on top of a situation for which the germ was never written to cover and so cannot foresee and therefore is only going to throw up inconsistencies and problems and incoherence. Um, I, I, just, I just don't know how helpful that is. No, I totally hear you. I, I do. I think more law would be good. And I think I, to I, sort of skip to, as I so often see people do, saying, well, this is an abuse. You know, this is blasphemy. It's like, well... Well, I'm not saying this is blasphemy. I mean, you can. I know you're not, but I'm saying that's that's what I see a lot of the sort of hyperbolic criticism of this sort of thing, and and when I do, I'm just like, well, who are you directing this at? The organizers of the event, the Pope for convening it. Like, who is your criticism directed towards? And the Pope can be accused of 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 overseeing Eucharistic irreverence or 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 creating or enabling a situation in which the Eucharist might be treated irreverently, right? And I do think there's an argument that. By its very nature, my, this is my point. By its very nature, a mass of 1.5 million people. Now, I I love World Youth Day effectively. I've been grateful to go to those masses, but by its very nature, a mass of 1.5 million people might lend itself towards the a greater possibility for profanation or or or, or abuse of the sacrament. And and you know, I was not a fan of um, live stream masses during COVID. We probably talked about this during COVID, but I always thought I it was a mistake. Did but I was not okay. A fan. I- I, don't I do always the thought live it was a mistake thing. for the bishops to say, okay, you can't come to Mass, so we're going to live stream the Masses. You should have a mediated participation in something you're not really attending, instead of saying to people, okay, you can't come to Mass, so since Vatican II called for greater participation of lay people in the liturgy of the hours of the prayer of the Church, we're going to make very easy for you the prayer of the Church, and we're going to encourage everybody on Sunday to pray morning prayer with their family on Sunday morning. And the diocese will even make, put together a little book, you know, Word on Fire, and this is not a commercial for Word on Fire, but Word on Fire <laughs> has put out sort of those books which are made to make the Liturgy of the Hours easier so you could pray the Liturgy of the Hours without knowing how ribbons work, and more people could put those out too. Um, the point is, like, I had always wished that and, – and and I think there's something – you know, I've read surveys where they say, you know, um, parents don't know how to pray vocally with their children, which is, you know, spontaneously, which is a profound poverty of their spirituality and the, which the church should help them with, and that parents are not comfortable praying with their children – and I had wished that instead of saying, okay, everybody watch TV together of a thing that is happening in a place where you're not, it was like, everybody pray to, with your family in your homes and we'll help you do it in real life. And so when I think about people 1.5 kilometers away from the altar, watching on a screen that's behind a screen that's behind a screen, I think, to what extent are they participating in this mass? And wouldn't it be better and more beautiful if 1.5 million people were perhaps really more concretely participating in praying morning prayer together and then having mass in small groups of 10,000 or something like that. I, I don't know, but it's just, it's a question that occurs to me. 
that strikes me as a very inexact and not particularly suitable um, comparison to make because uh, watching mass on TV at home, you are not physically present with anyone else. If you are one and a half kilometers back, but in the one and a half kilometers between you and the altar, it is all one continuous assembly. You are there and your participation is not mediated by a screen. You are participating as one assembly. And, uh, and I think that's a that's a real difference that you have to reckon with there. Now, I'm not saying that you know out, giant outdoor masses are the be all and end all, or even the best way of doing these things. When I went to the um, during Benedict's visit to the UK for the canonization of um, John Henry Newman, we did outdoor adoration in one of the parks in Central London. Thousands of people there, and there was you know um, he did solemn benediction, and everything. I thought that was beautiful. It didn't require any distribution of anything. Eucharist was still present. Worked great, huge assembly. Yeah, I was a long way away from the stage, but I knew exactly what I was facing and why I was praying that way. Um, so, so no, I don't think that the size of the crowd somehow means you're no longer physically or authentically part of the assembly that is engaged in a common act of worship. I just that, that doesn't make any sense to me. Let me read to you. I was talking with a friend about a few friends about this this morning, and just asking for their opinions. And one friend, a priest who is, um, you know, not a, not sort of cranky, and I think a supporter of World Youth Day on the whole, passed on to me an excerpt from an essay from um, Benedict the Sixteenth before he was Benedict the Sixteenth when he was Joseph Ratzinger. He's talking about the fact that he's talking about the fact that frequent communion, although a good has also led possibly, you know, the fact that at this time of the Second Vatican Council, the church encouraged people to receive the Eucharist more often, that before that people would probably receive the Eucharist most places less often. Um, and, you know, um, he says, uh, for example, not receiving communion on, he's talking about Good Friday, he says not receiving communion on one of the most holy days of the church's year, which was celebrated with no mass, was a particularly profound way of sharing the passion of the Lord. And then he says, I, he uses that as an analogy. He says, I think that as a Eucharistic fast of this kind, if it were deliberate and experiences a deprivation, could even today be properly significant on certain occasions that would have to be carefully considered, such as days of penitence. He's talking about the fact that you know you, now you can receive communion on Good Friday, but you without Mass, but you didn't used to receive communion on Good Friday. Um, he says, or also perhaps, especially. Uh, he says, and why not, for instance, on Good Friday once more, not receive the Eucharist on Good Friday? Then he says, or also, perhaps especially, uh, at great public masses, when there are so many people that a dignified distribution of the sacrament is often not possible, so that by not receiving the sacrament, people could truly show more reverence and love than by doing so in a way that can contradicts the sublime nature of this event. Again, Ratzinger suggests, and the, you know, the Ratzinger, Ratzinger suggests that a Eucharistic po- uh, fast could be uh, at a great public mass when there are so many, could be beautiful, a kind of uh, solidarity with the passion of the Lord, at a great public mass when there are so many people that a dignified distribution of the sacrament is not possible. So that by not receiving the sacrament, people could truly show more reverence and love than by doing so in a way that contradicts the sublime nature of this event. I'm not saying people should you know, mass protest the reception of Holy Communion at events, but I am saying I don't think we should sort of just hand wave the reality that at a 1.5 million person mass, the likelihood of Eucharistic profanation becomes more concrete. And your point is, well, we should do what we can to regulate that, but there's a good in the 1.5 million person mass. No, I'm I, saying I there's a reality good, in the one point, No, I'm saying there's a reality. Though. I have no objection to that quote from Ratzinger. In fact, I would entirely agree with it. And it has been my conduct on World Youth Days that I have attended. Uh, but I would note that Joseph Ratzinger grew up to be Pope Benedict the Sixteenth and didn't make that yeah, the reality of world days. <laughs> so this is my point: is you know, well, fine, it's no we, fun to be the man. Well, yeah, actually, if you could say, if you could sum up the entire Benedict the Sixteenth 
paper scene. It would be it's that no would be, fun to be the man. That's right. It's no exactly. fun to be the man. Yeah. I quit. I... <laughs> okay. Hard um, decisions. No thanks. Where we have landed here is that JD, to everyone's surprise, JD, critical of World Youth Day practice, Ed, full in, 100%, Vuvuzela in tow, Eucharistic World Youth Day supporter. People who, who have bring Vuvuzelas to World Youth Day <laughs> should be forced to eat them. But they do. They do bring Vuvuzelas oh, to World Youth Day. I know. Day. They're bad I'm people. Saying, I'm, I like World Youth Day. I'm a supporter of World Youth Day. I do think there are points to be made about the big mass. I think people who's in some, I think there are points to be made about the big mass which I have had an effectively positive experience at, but I see the point. I think, you know, you can have the big mass. It does not seem to me that liturgical law envisions that you would have the big mass and not distribute the Eucharist to anybody. Therefore, it seems to me that if you have the big mass, you have to figure out the distribution of Holy Communion. And it would seem to me that that may just present a lot of problems that have to be looked at very concretely. Your point is, yeah, we look at them by law, and I think that's fair. But I think it's fair to at least ask, is the big mass the right thing? Or are there other means of big spiritual devotional solidarity my 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 point is not that it's better to ask one or the other i'm saying that the things you're proposing it is apt to ask I'm saying those have all been asked and answered over and over and over again and they're answered you think by there's the been a whole lot of doing it discussion in rome uh, like at the pontifical council for the new evangelization or whatever it's called now should we have the big mass or do you think it's just sort of the thing that we always do well i don't think that you get Joseph Ratzinger saying that becoming Benedict XVI and making zero changes without really? that conversation. What you think he just got there and just forgot what he thought about said, the whole thing? No, I don't think so. I think he got there and they said, "Your Holiness, it's time for you to go to Cologne and we have the big mass." And he said, oh, "Okay, <laughs> okay, I'll do the big mass." Because what 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 is one thing that defined the Benedict papacy? Among many things, what many of which are good, a profound admiration for and deference to the leadership decisions of John Paul II. It was, apart from Samorum, which is a deviation from that, generally speaking, Benedict's approach was, especially in the early years, was to defo- defer to his good friend and a hero of the church, who is a hero of the church. But I don't think Benedict, after immediately after his election, would have been in a position, also everything had been planned, blah, blah, blah. I don't think, I mean, he was elected in April and then he went to World Youth Day in July. I don't think he would have been in a position to say, Ah, maybe we talk about this very honestly, and then by then he'd done it, you know. So I'm not so sure. Okay. My point is, we keep having these, and the popes, plural, show no signs of stopping them, and seem to keep having them. So I, I think rather than questioning whether we should do something different, because we're clearly not, we should think about how we do this better. Fair enough. I, I agree. It doesn't show signs of stopping. Well, good talk. Yes. Don't speed. I don't know what you're talking about. You, you don't? Okay. Well, fair enough. Ed, this week's episode of the Podcast has been brought to you by the Christendom College Graduate School of Theology, where theology is practiced with uncompromising fidelity to the deposit of faith. You can learn more at graduate.christendom.edu. And before we go, first of all, thank you to the Christendom College Graduate School of Theology. Before we go, Ed, you made fun of me yesterday. I often make fun I of went, you. What for? to do something that you were skeptical of. I went to a friend's house, a listener of the show, uh, who has a pickleball court to play pickleball. And you sort of said, oh, you know, are you going down to going to move down to Florida and have a brand shake after that, et cetera, et cetera. But Ed, I have to tell you, pickleball is where it's at. Like uh, how many sports can you get a decent cardio workout with a, an iced glass of tequila in your hand and bond with your wife all at the same time? Uh, I, 
Uh, I can't. All I'm saying that I can't think of any. I okay. look. I'm, I. I. It, it, I was not making fun of the fact that pickleball is a thing, or even that it's called <laughs> pickleball. Which I, I. I would argue you're asking for it, but um, you no. Know, it was more that J.D. Flynn, blue collar hero, champion of the working <laughs> man. Was was putting on his white New Balance and you know his all white outfit, probably probably adjusting that nice little golf visor you wear when you, when you do this sort of thing, <laughs> and going off to play the sport of the suburban middle class. I just, you know, I understand, but I got to tell you, really fun. And again, tequila, cardio workout, the wife, good friends, pickleball is where it's at, my friend. The Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media and Ed and JD Production. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, JD Flynn, joined by my podcasting partner, Pillar co-founder, Ed Condon. Our executive producer is the great Kate Oliveira. We'll be back next week. Just-